There's enough energy blown in the wind to nearly double the country's current energy generating capacity. I'm Robert Colangelo and this is Green Sense, where we bring you the latest eco innovations. We're joined by Hannah Reed with Environment America, who will help us understand what needs to happen to increase wind energy capacity to meet the Biden administration's aggressive wind energy goals. Hannah, welcome to Green Sense. Thank you so much for having me, Robert. It's great to be here. Well, your mission on your website states that Environment America is there to transform the power of our imaginations and our ideas into change that makes our world a greener and healthier place for all. Sounds wonderful. Tell me what kind of programs you do to accomplish that. Sure. Well, I'm happy to talk a little bit about what I do, which is I work on our Go Big on Offshore Wind campaign. And in terms of, you know, where our imaginations are with offshore wind, we know that we have so much capacity that we are imagining a really big, bright and bold future that's built on renewable energy rather than fossil fuels. So that's where my campaign comes in. And we're really envisioning this as a way to transform our lives to be built on clean air and clean water and renewable energy is really going to help us get there. And offshore wind is a really key part of that. Great. So you're a nonprofit organization. Are you a political organization or nonpartisan? Tell me a little bit about uh, your, your position. Sure. So we really define ourselves as transpartisan. We're eager to work with whoever is willing to come to the table with us on our issues. And we believe that the issues that we work on affect everybody on any side of the aisle and anyone who identifies with any political party. So I would say transpartisan is really how we approach our work. And that's the kind of people we like to have on our show, objective and science-based. <laughs> how are you guys funded? Absolutely. Uh, so we we do our work from a variety of angles, um, but, you know, we, we raise our money through grants, but we also really like to connect with our members a lot. And so we do a lot of canvassing work, and we really believe that connecting with the public is a great way to support the work that we do. Fantastic. Well, let's get into the interview. Uh, the U.S. Department of Energy estimates that 2,000 gigawatts of energy, that's a lot of energy, blows and winds off the U.S. coasts, uh, and the Biden administration plans to build thousands of offshore wind turbines by 2030 to generate 30 gigawatts of offshore wind capacity in the U.S. waters by 2030 and 110 gigawatts by 2050. Um, that was from an April 19th, 2021 National Geographic article. In your opinion, how realistic are these goals uh, when there are just five offshore wind turbines currently and all of them are in the state of Rhode Island? That's a great question. Um, I think it's definitely realistic and I think it has to be realistic if we're really going to tackle our climate goals and pursue renewable energy at scale and I think it's definitely doable. We actually recently released a report called Offshore Wind for America which found that we have over 7200 terawatt hours of offshore wind potential up and down our coasts and that every single coastline in the U.S. has offshore wind potential. So you know, it's just a question of our states committing to getting that energy from offshore wind. And really, again, it's, it's that question of, you know, making our imaginations a reality and, you know, putting the confidence in offshore wind to get us there. But I think it's definitely doable. We just need to start thinking about it as a reality. 
And how are we going to, I mean, it's nice to say that, but how are we practically going to do it? <laughs> sure. That's a great question. And this comes at a really timely moment because we're expecting the decision for Vineyard Wind, which is the nation's first utility scale offshore wind farm in the whole country. So that's a really big deal because we've never had utility scale offshore wind. And as you said, we only have a few turbines spinning off the coast of Rhode Island just right now. So it's a question of continuing to put those ideas into actual practice and into strong enforcement legislation as Massachusetts did a few weeks ago with the recent climate bill and committing to getting more energy from offshore wind. That's really what's going to put us there on the playing field. So we have five offshore wind turbines in Rhode Island. What's it going to take to get to 30 gigawatts? How many more? Um, I can't tell you exactly how many turbines because that number is always changing. And as our technology becomes even more efficient and powerful, that that could also change. Um, it's really a question of just how much offshore wind can our states commit to. So it's really going to be a question of tapping the potential up and down the East Coast. Um, and the exact number, again, as I said, will kind of differ as each state does have different amounts of potential. Um, but it's going to take, I mean, we have almost 30 gigawatts of planned offshore wind, you know, in commitments from our states. So it's, but it's about continuing to build on that and bumping up the timelines because some of those are dependent on a 2035 timeline rather than 2030. So it's about accelerating that timeline and putting even more commitments into place. You know, we're throwing around numbers like gigawatts. I feel like I'm in the Back to the Future movie and you know, <laughs> 30 and 110. So I asked that question just to give it context to our listeners because I have no sure. idea what that means. So how many, you, you don't have to be precise, but give me a range of windmills that uh, we're talking about. Is sure. it 10? Is it 100? Is it 1,000? <laughs> well, I guess to put it into some pretty direct context, as I just mentioned, Vineyard Wind is expected to be approved any day now, and their project is focused on, I believe, around 60 turbines with the new turbines that they're planning to use. And that's an 800 megawatt project, which then translates into over 400,000 homes being powered. So that sort of gives you an idea. And again, those numbers are going to change state by state, depending on, you know, how far the power has to come in from and the speed and efficiency of the turbine. But that gives you an idea on a project-based level how much energy we could be getting from offshore wind when it comes to powering your own home. And how many megawatts are in a gigawatt? Um, I believe there are a thousand megawatts in a gigawatt. <laughs> um, I always get a little tripped up on this. Oh, uh, we're dealing with very megawatts. big numbers here. And exactly. at 110 gigawatts, how many homes would that power? That's pretty hard to say, but we know many millions. And we also know that we don't need all of our offshore wind capacity to power our entire country on renewable energy. We know it can be a great complement to things like solar and onshore wind. But I guess, again, just to put that in context, the Biden administration's recent commitment to 30 gigawatts of offshore wind power is expected to power over 10 million homes. So if we multiply that, you know, several times over, that gets us to, you know, many dozens of millions. And that's a lot of homes powered yeah, by offshore pretty, wind. Yeah, that's pretty exciting. So, exactly. Uh, Again, help us put it in context. Many of us have seen uh, land-based or terrestrial uh, wind turbines. What's an offshore wind turbine look like? Great question. How do they differ from the land-based? Sure. Uh, well, it's it's a little bit of a hard question for me since I actually have never been able to get out and see one. You know, with COVID, oh, you got to get out there. You're. I the know, I know, but uh, you know, with COVID, it's been hard. We would have normally done some kind of tour of one, but I have yet to actually see what they look like. But I've seen enough pictures to know, and um, you know, I think 
the offshore wind turbines can look like two different things. They can either be directly attached to the bottom of the ocean, which is called a fixed turbine, or it can be a floating offshore wind turbine, which is kind of a newer technology, but something that we're really looking into using off the coast of California and Maine, where there's, you know, the coastal shelf drops off a lot more quickly and it's a lot harder to connect those turbines directly to the ocean floor. So it can look like a few different things and they've got various structures and different ways of attaching them to the ground, but it again either looks like a fixed bottom turbine or a floating turbine. And I have never been to an offshore wind turbine, but I've seen pictures and they're massive. They require mm -hmm. special monopiles when you, when you were talking when they're fixed to the ground, special cranes and special barges just to mount the turbines, you know, to the fixed structure. What other infrastructure is going to be needed to be in place to meet this, you know, very aggressive goal? Sure. Well, I think we can look to New Jersey to see some great examples of that. And part of that is that they've started to explore a new wind port where they're going to help to manufacture those turbines domestically. Uh, and that's going to be really key to get that port infrastructure up and running so that it's pretty easy to transport our turbines from land to the water. Um, you know, we're going to need pretty big ships, as you can imagine, to help get those giant turbines. I think you touched on a good point, which is that offshore wind turbines are really big. And that's another factor is that they usually tend to be a lot bigger than their onshore counterparts too. Um, so yeah, I think it's just about getting that infrastructure in place. But again, it's very doable. We just have to invest. And I think regional collaboration is a really big piece of that as well. And states can work together to ensure that that infrastructure is actually there to get the job done. I live uh, near a port uh, where a lot of the uh, wind turbine blades come in. And oftentimes it stops traffic and there's uh, a major uh, effort to move these things from the port to their final destination. So I imagine this is going to create lots of jobs from riggers that have to move this heavy, precise equipment to truck drivers, to all the manufacturing jobs. Um, what, are your what are your thoughts when it comes to the kinds of direct and support jobs that this industry is going to create? Yeah, well, I will say, you know, we're more focused on the environmental impacts of this rather than the jobs piece, but it's no secret that offshore wind is definitely going to be a great opportunity for uh, local jobs. And I think that that's a really big attraction of renewable energy is that we know it can be here to support our citizens. But I think, you know, even more exciting than that, not that it just creates jobs, but that it can power our lives with clean and renewable energy. And we know that people can feel really good about the energy that they're powering their home with. And we know that 40% of Americans live on coasts. So offshore wind is located really close to where we need it and it can support our lives both through jobs, but also in our day-to-day -day activities and what it takes just to keep our homes going and our businesses running. So when I think of wind turbines offshore, I think of special interest groups opposing them. And so let's talk a little bit about that. Um, you know, there's talk about the fishing industry having concerns about wind turbines because they may disrupt their catches. Any thoughts about uh, impacting fisheries or any other uh, wildlife or habitat impacts from the turbines? Sure. Well, I think 
in general, of course, we have to acknowledge that there are going to be impacts on our fisheries. But I know that our states and our federal government and our offshore wind developers are working really hard to develop a very engaging stakeholder process and to make sure that those people feel that they have their voices heard. And that's going to be a really key part of this whole process is helping those concerns become heard and also developing really robust scientific monitoring programs so that we can do the research and figure out what's going to be needed to minimize impacts on our fisheries. Um, a, a really good example of that is in Maine where we're looking at those floating research arrays uh, and how hard they're trying to work with the fisheries and really yeah work alongside them uh, to make sure that that research array can then provide the information needed later when more offshore wind development comes down the pipeline and you know we can look directly at that and use that info to make it a better experience for everyone. How would wind turbines impact fisheries? It's really hard to say. And I think that's part of why the research array is so critical is because we don't yet know. And our ecosystems here in the US are totally unique, of course. So we can also look to the success that it's had in Europe and know that we can replicate that here in the US. Again, it's just gonna take those robust monitoring programs and stakeholder engagement to you know, help mitigate those impacts. I think about the aesthetics of the coastlines. People pay a lot of money to live on coasts. Uh, what kind of opposition will be there uh, be from uh, homeowners along coastal uh, zones? You know, I think we are seeing some nimbyism right now, and uh, and for listeners who don't know, not in my backyard, we are seeing some of that. But what people don't realize is that, first of all, offshore wind farms are going to be located really far offshore. I think people overestimate the visual impact that they're going to have. But more than that, I mean, I think that while, of course, there is going to be some opposition, there's also going to be that very tangible impact of getting our energy from renewable energy. And I think a lot of people will actually be really excited to be able to see wind turbines off our coasts and know that we're getting our energy from that great abundant renewable resource. So of course there's always going to be opposition, but I think the excitement and the benefits really outweigh that. So our show is always focused both on the good that green can do for the economy, but also the economics of green. And currently we just uh, recently did a show on shipping and how uh, you know cost of shipping's gone up and there's been quite uh, uh, dislodging and and uh, uh, problems and kinks in the supply chain with ships backed up in ports, containers in China and, not, and, and a shortage of them. So what about the economics and the rising cost of steel and the rising cost of shipping rates? How will that impact uh, uh, production of these wind turbines? Yeah, good question. And as I said, you know, I can't speak too much to this. We're more focused on the advocacy side of, you know, the benefits that offshore wind brings. And as with any new energy, I think this is going to present its own unique challenges. But we know that in the long term, investing in renewable energy, no matter what the upfront costs, is going to yield some really long term benefits. And I think that we know that that's true already with what we've seen from solar and onshore wind. And offshore wind is such a huge resource source that it's just going to take that leap of imagination to then start investing and making it a reality so that it can take off and we can, you know, see the environmental benefits and then also those economic benefits too. You have the support of the Biden administration on this issue. What, what other legislative changes uh, need to take place in order for this to occur? 
Sure, and I'd like to take this opportunity just to emphasize what a big deal it is that we have support from the Biden administration since it's just such a big move on the part of the federal government to show that kind of support both to our states and to our offshore wind developers and know that we have a friend in the White House because it's just a new move that we haven't seen yet before and I think it's going to really help to speed up the process. So they've done a lot of the big legwork right up front there. Uh, you know, they've committed to speeding up those projects that are in the pipeline up and down the East Coast. And that's a big deal because even as we've seen with Vineyard Wind, those projects have taken so long to get off the ground that that's one of the biggest barriers so far to offshore wind development. And already with the Department of the Interior and, and the Bureau of Ocean and Energy Management committing to moving those along, I think that's gonna be a big help. But the other thing that we really need to see is continued commitments from our states because we only have 26 gigawatts uh, committed to right now from our states and we know that we have so much potential we can do a lot more so it's going to be again about that strong enforceable legislation to then let you know our developers and the country know that we're ready to see more offshore wind on our coasts. What I found to be a big impediment in the environmental industry is sometimes building codes and things way uh, deep down in the local level uh, what are your thoughts on that and any plans to uh, do advocacy or support at that level? Sure. Well, I think offshore wind really is about all different levels of government and community, and it'll take a lot of coordination between our local, our state, and our federal government to make this happen. So I think it's going to be really about equal engagement and making sure that everyone's voice is heard along the way so that everyone can work together and implement it successfully so that we have a really strong model to build on in the future. What about tax incentives and having long range planning since these projects take so long to gestate if tax incentives are not around for a long term it's hard for people to count on those and use that as part of their project finance. Absolutely. I would 100% agree with you. And that's something that we advocate for in our report, Offshore Wind for America, as I mentioned earlier, because we know that right now the tax credits for offshore wind are pretty short term, and it's really hard to ensure that long term success and for those developers to know that they do have that financial support. So I think those long term credits are going to be really key to this long-term success of offshore wind. So I think that's another thing we really are advocating for is for those tax credits to be extended in a meaningful way. The wind doesn't blow all the time. So uh, being able to store energy is gonna be critical to a cohesive long-term renewable energy plan. What are your thoughts on that? And how does that relate to uh, wind turbine energy? Sure. Well, you know, increased battery storage, of course, is gonna be really instrumental, but also, one thing that we're envisioning when we talk about developing all this offshore wind is that it's part of a 100% renewable energy future. And part of what that means is transitioning our buildings, our industries, and our transportation to run more on electricity rather than fossil fuels so that our demand is for energy is coming from electricity. And that's where offshore wind can really step up and be a really key player. And you know, when the demand for electricity then is highest in the winter when we need it most, offshore wind is gonna be there. But as you mentioned, the wind doesn't blow all the time. And so it's gonna be a great complement to solar and to onshore wind, excuse me. And then of course that battery storage is gonna play a really key role as well. One of the challenges with energy is distribution and the, the amount of loss as you distribute it further and further. 
Is the uh, thought process here that the offshore wind will primarily uh, provide energy to the coasts and the interior part of the country will use solar and other renewable resources, or will you be able to transmit that efficiently long distances? I think it's hard to say right now exactly what the transmission infrastructure is going to look like, and it is going to take a lot of planning to ensure that that, you know, becomes really successful and that we can share our energy between states. But as I mentioned before, 40% of our Americans do live on our coasts, so most immediately offshore wind can benefit them, and then hopefully down the line, you know, we could see it being distributed to other parts of the country, uh, but of course that's where solar and onshore wind can also really step up and be part of a really robust and diverse energy system so that we're not so reliant on any one form of renewable energy. Hannah, you seem very passionate about this. How did you get involved with wind energy? Yeah, that's a great question. I mean, I grew up in Massachusetts and I've spent a lot of time on Cape Cod. So I've always been really passionate about preserving our natural spaces. And that's what piqued my interest in renewable energy is, you know, the effects of global warming and knowing that investing in renewable energy is one of the best ways we can invest in a healthier future. Um, so I've always been interested in the role that Massachusetts has to play with developing offshore wind and knowing now that we have the most offshore wind potential of any state in the country, you know, I'm more invested than ever. So that's sort of how I got my start, but I'm definitely, you know, still very invested and really excited to see where offshore wind goes. So uh, put on your uh, uh, Swami hat and give me your prognostication. When do you think we're going to be living in the USA and have most of our electricity generated from renewable energy with a large portion of that coming from wind? That's pretty hard to say. You know, we try not to put a specific year or a specific number on things because there's a lot of different factors at play here. But I think as soon as possible really would be my best answer. And I think that the coming decades and the Biden administration's recent commitment to renewable energies, including offshore wind, you know, getting that 30 gigawatts by 2030, I think that and more, I think is what we would say. And, and really trying to speed up the timeline as, as fast as we can so we can start living in that cleaner, healthier world we keep talking about. Well, I enjoyed talking with you and thanks for joining us on Green Sense. Yeah, thank you so much, Robert. It was a pleasure. That's Hannah Reed with Environment America talking about offshore wind. I'm Robert Colangelo and this is Green Sense, reminding you to subscribe to our podcast at greensensefarms.com and to check out the Green Sense Minute every Thursday and Saturday on News Radio 780 and 105.9 FM WBBM Chicago.